Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. A secret brotherhood of occult masters hidden somewhere in the Himalayas have been conspiring to manipulate humankind by keeping us ignorant of the true occult nature of the universe, reframing our Western religious traditions, namely Christianity, as the poor copies of older Eastern religions, and implement a program to manipulate humankind into an enforced peace and managed union by establishing a secret international organization that they control, namely the United Nations. <gasps> Which is not a secret, I guess. We know about it, but they secretly control it. It's not the best secret, but... They're, they are the secret. Uh, yes. The United Nations is not secret. <laughs> so goes a line of conspiracy theories dating back to the 1890s, and inspired by Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Blavatsky, the theory goes, was the messenger or pawn of these secret societies, and she was responsible for setting the wheels in motion for a vast global system of occult manipulation that has persisted into the present day. Helena Blavatsky operated according to commands sent to her telepathically and supernaturally in precipitated letters. These letters were written by the brothers. No, not her brothers, but oh. but the brothers but of the could White some Lodge. Of them been her brothers? No, they were not her. No, they weren't. Mm. They could not have been. They mm. were the brothers of the White Lodge, the secret occult White Lodge. Which she distributed, the letters that is, to her colleagues and followers. The letters expressed these secret brothers' mission to preserve the science of occultism and supported an effort to enlighten the Western world by gradually exposing them to the mysteries of Eastern religion, particularly esoteric versions of Hinduism and Buddhism, in the hope of bringing about a worldwide enlightenment. This is really a good thing. Written on the seal of Blavatsky's Theosophical Society is the credo, There is no religion higher than truth. The master's, or brother's, truth revealed the hidden oneness of all religions as reflections of the ultimate knowledge that only the Brotherhood had anything like a comprehensive understanding of. That kind of messed me up a little bit, Rob. It's pretty intense, right? It was really deep, yeah. Unless, of course, it's all made up. Well, that's less what? deep now. Yes. Oh. It's entirely <sighs> possible that Blavatsky made up these masters. They were hidden, after all. So much So no one could prove it. She was the only one that we would communicate it through, right? So there's not a secret group controlling the United Nations? There still might be. This is the first. We don't know. we got to find out. That's okay. the mystery. It's the first of, Get ahead of myself. two episodes focused on Blavatsky's Indian Mahatmas. There's really two big occult mysteries to uncover here, Shannon. First... Oh. Since the masters remained hidden from the public and only Blavatsky and a few close followers ever communicated with them, the question becomes, did they even exist at all, mm -hmm. as we just said, yeah. or were they her invention? We'll be tackling that issue today. So never fear. You don't have to wait. We're going to try and answer that today as best as we can. Okay. But we might not be able to do it. We're going to try. Oh. What? The second issue is, if they exist, what do they want? And how are they trying to achieve it? Okay, so, yeah, I just want to make sure I understand it. They're following the real religion. Secret White Lodge. The Secret truth. White, they the have truth. the truth, the true religion. But there's other religions, all that's just there's like religions a lie, all over the place. slash a cover-up that they made people believe so they don't find out about the truth? No, no, they're, they're, they're just concealing the truth until we're ready for it. Yeah, I think you're mm. getting a little too conspiratorial. Though. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, after that, that reptilian that episode. They just don't think we're, we might not be, we can't handle the truth just yet. You can't handle the truth. Yeah. But Shannon. if we can't handle the yeah. truth, then how do we know that there is a truth? 
Oh, okay. That's a little much for me. I gotta. That's what a check call out. confessions is here for. Okay. Yeah, let's uh, let's begin let's our go. journey Just to the White Lodge. Like I didn't need that. To the White Lodge, friends, at the top Onward. of the Himalayan mountains. That seems like That's... a massive effort. My name is Rob Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors and doctor of American occultism. I am in my element today. I am joined by <laughs> Brianna Litterall, substituting in for Olivia. Whoa. She is our metallurgic prophet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shannon Landers, our instaquisitor. Hello. And Jacob Wheatley, knight. I was going to call you a master, but you're a knight. I, You've I been knighted. A, I've been knighted. I might become a master of... The dangling serpent. Yeah, thank you. Okay. How does one become a master? You gotta work up your education. Yeah. Well, you, he's been knighted. I mean, that's that was pretty. Oh, how do you become a master? Sorry, we can continue. We, the members of the, <laughs> the secret, secret order of alchemical, alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Cool. Uh, so, uh, again, we've moved our order of confessors to the end of the episode, but in lieu of that, we are going to do three plugs. It's a new segment I'm doing. Mm. Three plugs. We will plug three things, because mm. this is a commercial-free podcast, mm, so we plug three things at the top of the episode. Okay. But no more than three. All right. I'm going to keep tally. Here we go. This. Plug number one, please subscribe to our podcast if you are enjoying it, and review it. If you are listening on iTunes or any other place where you could review it. Oh, Plug yeah. number one. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Plug number yeah. two. Uh, join us on Patreon. We're now doing that at the top of the episode. But as part of our three plugs, I want to thank Benjamin B., who is our newest patron. <gasps> thank you. Welcome, Benjamin. And we're going to be featured on Life Mancy. Our friend Rachel from Texas is uh, clipping a piece of our episode oh, on the subliminal right. consciousness and I did not know about the that. soul and all that stuff, and she's going to feature it <gasps> in her. Yeah, she does lots of clips in in her podcast. So cool. check out Life Mancy. We're and, making and our friend friends. Rachel. This is Ooh. exciting. Texas yeah. friends. <laughs> Good old Even Texas. better. Yes. <laughs> Even better. All right, let's get to uh, Madame Blavatsky, shall we? Okay. In America, that's three plugs. That was it. That was it. Closing yeah. it up. See? See how quick that, quick and painless that is? It was, yeah. I feel like we spent more time talking about how many plugs there were. <laughs> than there than was actually plugs. listing the plugs. Well, we don't have to do that ever again. Now we oh, will know that it's okay. going to be a feature of our second year of podcasting that there will be three plugs. How many plugs? Uh, three uh, plugs. We still spent more time on that. We're still, yeah, we're adding more time. Longer. I just want to rack up the minutes right, here. Right. We're talking about yep. plug number. All right, fine. <laughs> In America, Blavatsky worked most closely with the Brotherhood of Luxor who often communicated with her through the spirit of John King, our last episode. Oh, yes, right. pirate man. Pirate pirate ghost. Pirate ghost man. Even better. <laughs> yeah. Serapis Bay and Tuitit were prominent letter writers in these early days. They were the masters who wrote most of the letters to her mm-hmm. from their secret their names Egyptian are so... luxury. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then, uh, as Blavatsky got closer to making the trip to India, and after traveling to India, her allegiance shifted from the Egyptian Luxorites to the Indian Mahatmas, namely Master Maurya and Kuthumi. 
Wait, that sounds familiar. Yeah, we've talked about Coop, Coop. before. Yeah, you, you, Jacob's favorite Humi. <laughs> the only Humi to me. So these masters uh, would have accompanied Blavatsky on her travels through Tibet in 1867 and 1868. And then, the story goes, they took a backseat during her launching of the Theosophical Society in America, leaving Bay and Tuiti to lead the way. And finally, they resumed their interest in her as she planned to establish a headquarters for the society in India if we follow all this. So there's a lot of ins and outs of the brotherhoods here, but she's essentially hanging out with the Himalayan brothers, then she leaves them for a while to mm-hmm. hang out with the Egyptian brothers, then she goes back to mm-hmm. her Himalayan brothers. Okay. Right, here's a definition of uh, the Mahatma, according to Blavatsky herself. A Mahatma is a personage who, by special training and education, has evolved those higher faculties and has attained that spiritual knowledge which ordinary humanity will acquire after passing through numberless series of reincarnations during the process of cosmic evolution. HPB, which is what we call Helena Blavatsky, the cool oh, kids. I didn't get that. Yeah, she went by that. She <laughs> went by HPB. Really? Yeah. She and Alcott uh, departed from New York. Also, Jack. Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> she really did, yeah. She would occasionally go by Jack. Could Alcott Jack? called her Jack. Yeah, her friend and HPB. So HPB, we'll go back P-B. to that. HPB and Alcott departed from New York for Bombay by way of London in December 1878 and arrived in India in February 1879. These dates are going to be on the quiz. There's a quiz. So it took about, about three months to, to get there. There's no quiz. For the next five years, Blavatsky and Olcott crisscrossed British-occupied India, befriending Indians and Raj colonizers alike. What is the Raj, you ask yourself? Yes. I can hear it. I can hear it. What is the Raj? Yes. Uh, I will tell you in our uh, very early episode, Brief History. We're going to invite James Kaplanges over to the circle to do a brief history of the Raj. A brief history of the Raj. Mm. The Raj. I like the way you say that. Thank you. (laughs) The Raj is the name given to the British colonization of India. Yeah. So referring to India, but under British colonization. Right, right. Colonization began not with Britain as a nation, but Britain as a company. Specifically, the company of the East India Company. A joint stock operation responsible for opening up trade with the East and initiating the colonization of Southeast Asia, China, and India. Yeah, we just sent that company all over the place. The company did the conquering. The colonization of India began in earnest with the East India Company's victory at the Battle of Plassey in Bengal. They defeated the Nawab of Bengal and the French, who had been competing with the British for control of Indian trade. Yeah, they're fighting around the world, the French and the British. It's like, hey, you're here? I don't want to see you here. I'm here. You get over there. <laughs> they're racing each other to places. Yeah, they're like a couple of school children trying to conquer the map. This is my place. <laughs> I was here first. This is my desert. I licked it. It seems strange to say that a company conquered Bengal, but when you think of the role of defense contractors in modern warfare in the Middle East, it's not so strange after all. And it makes the profit motive behind warfare refreshingly transparent. Yeah, as opposed to Halliburton. Yes. Mm. The loss of America in 1783 drove the British public's interest in expanding their empire into India. And by 1849, they had defeated the Sikhs and conquered the Sindh and annexed the Punjab and made arrangements with princes in other regions for cooperation and control. Yeah, they pretty much had the subcontinent. Halfway through the 1800s. Yeah, yeah, it took about 90 years. Wow. It's a long time, but they have a lot of mountains, so it's hard to maneuver around. <laughs> It's a lot of maneuvering. 
The typical British bureaucrat in India was attended by house full of Indian servants, carried through the streets in a shaded palanquin carried by teams of eight working in shifts of four. So they would put you down, those four guys uh, who are carrying you, and then they would walk to the back, and there were four guys who had been walking behind you. And they would pick you up. And then the guys who were carrying you, they would walk behind you. Like teams of human wheels. <laughs> Just turning I wonder turn. how heavy these palanquins were. Well, as heavy as a British guy. Plus, plus more. he's carrying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, I guess the weight of the thing. Like, my kid in the car seat is way heavy. Because it's the kid and the car seat. Yeah, something about the car seat makes her heavier. <laughs> they were mostly soldiers and administrators and frequently bored, lacking the company of merchants, businessmen, artists, and writers. Dueling was common, even though it had been outlawed back home in Britain, because of the culture of ex excessive drinking, gambling, sexual license, and personal honor among army officers. Yeah, uh, India was like the Wild West for British aristocrats. Or the, like, Australia of... I guess the Wild West. It's British, yeah. yeah. <laughs> British criminals. Yes. <laughs> Beginning in the 1830s, the British Parliament became dominated by liberals who sought to reshape Indians as liberal British citizens. Education for Indians, who would serve as middle managers in the company and railroads, were central to these plans. But liberalizing efforts had to be balanced against native customs and traditions, which were often rooted in Hinduism. British clergymen came in to convert the populace, but, B but Blavatsky and Olcott arrived in India with the opposite project. Yeah, that brings us up to where we're at. And that's a brief history of the Raj. Beautiful. Great. Nice job, James. Awesome. Nice job. <laughs> like always. In 1880, the island nation of Sri Lanka invited Olcott and Blavatsky to visit after one of their more famous orators. What's that? Rob? An orator? A guy who speaks for fun and, and profit. Why would you speak oh. for fun? Prophet. It's speaking uh, fun? His name was Megatuvate Gunananda. Megatuvate Gunananda. So he was a really famous dude in 19th century Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. as you all know. Yeah. And he translated Isis Unveiled as part of his ongoing conflict with the nation's Christian missionaries. Blavatsky's anti Christian polemic in Isis Unveiled he really got on board with, because it was penned by her, a white Russian woman, with the assistance of an American man. So he was like, look at these white people, they think Christianity's stupid, so Sri Lankans, who should be Buddhists, what the hell, mm. right? Be cool, stop being Christians, stay Buddhist. That's basically what he's going around doing. Mm. So this guy, he's like, look at how cool these two are, why don't you come to Sri Lanka? So through Gunananda, they become Sri Lanka famous, Olcott and Blavatsky, which is an awesome kind of famous. If you can be famous on an entire Southeast Asian island, Sri you Sri should Lanka's be. Sri Lanka? I feel like, yeah. <laughs> You're Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka. There you go. Yeah. Olcott would go on to champion Buddhism in Sri Lankan schools and help to compose a Buddhist catechism. Catechism. That's a word for me. Mm. That's not in my... You don't say it daily? <laughs> no, I don't say that daily. <laughs> Essentially, it it's like a book of how you do this. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. it is. Okay. Essentially, so he, he publishes this book and he works in the schools rescuing the country's religion, Buddhism, from the jaws of Christian missionaries who are trying to stamp it out, essentially. <laughs> yeah, those Christians always go after the Buddhists. With their jaws. <laughs> I can say this as, as a Christian. As, as a one. white Christian male. Yeah, we always... 
Well, not me, but... Following their adventures in Sri Lanka, Blavatsky and Alcott found themselves at the home of A.P. Sinnott, a man who would go on to become a major figure in India's new theosophical society. Alfred Percy Sinnott lived with his wife, Patience, in Allahabad, Brightland, where he edited The Pioneer, a leading Indian newspaper considered to be the mouthpiece of the colonial government. After returning from Sri Lanka, Blavatsky and Alcott spent six weeks with the Sinnots. Alfred recorded their experiences with Blavatsky's supernatural feats in his first book, The Occult World, which made a splash back home in England. Yeah, exciting mm. book. We're going to learn all about it today. I know. Sinnott, <laughs> it's like your favorite sound. It really is. Sinnott <laughs> asked Blavatsky to open up a direct line of communication with one of her Mahatmas. So he's like, okay, Blavatsky, so you have these Mahatmas. I want one. Hmm. Kudhumi, <laughs> he's just going to take a Mahatma. Can one just take a Mahatma? He can have his. He wants his own Mahatma line, his own line to the Mahatmas. Because he he's known her for six weeks, so clearly he's entitled to that now. How? But how do you? You're okay. British. First of all, you're a British colonial in India, and you just feel like you can have whatever you want. So you're used to uh, taking things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So She's so like, give me a Mahatma. She's like, I'll ask them. Mahatma. Maybe. They won't go after Coot, will they? They will. Coot Humi accepts the offer. No! <gasps> not Coot. No. Well, they didn't go after him. He came to them because oh, he's hidden. So you can't just dramatic. go get him. You can't find the hidden. <laughs> <laughs> so between Masters Moria and Humi, speaking of these two guys, Moria appeared to be of a slightly higher order than Coot. Sorry. Although Blavatsky described them as residing together in the Karakorum Mountains. Humi had been a native of the Punjab and studied in Europe b before becoming a member of the Brotherhood. Moria had appeared to Alcott in the early days of the society, but preferred to leave most of the letter writing to Humi. So, Coot, lower in the order, but talks Number a lot Number one more. in our hearts. Uh, right. And he writes all your letters. Cool. A lot of your letters. Correspondence between Humi and Sinnott was passed through Madame Blavatsky and informed the content of both Sinnott's book, The Occult World, and his subsequent book, Esoteric Buddhism. He asked Blavatsky if she would pass a message to one of her masters in hopes that it might precipitate a regular correspondence. Basically, he thought that because he was British, as we mentioned, and because he had a newspaper, so he's extra special, he was entitled to have this exchange with one of the masters. But he quickly found out that Humi had mixed feelings about writing to him. Hmm. Humi told Sinnott that occultism was an ancient science that used to be practiced through the globe, but as history marched forward and European culture became increasingly material in its philosophy, this occultism had only been preserved in select corners of the world, namely Egypt and India, home of Blavatsky's two brotherhoods. The brothers were focused on the development of the soul. Further exploration of occult secrets, so number one, the soul, number two, occult secrets, and number three, use of supernatural power that Indians called akas in order to achieve paranormal feats. In order to keep occultism alive, the brothers had to be constantly focused on the development of this knowledge. While they were sympathetic to Blavatsky's project to publicize their discoveries and enlighten humanity, Humi was unwilling to let his and the brothers' own research decay while they turned to this marketing project. So I had a quick question. So it says um, they would try to achieve paranormal feats. What's the, what would an example of this be? We're going to find out. Oh, wow. Yes, we're about to hear about the paranormal feats. 
Look at me go. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to point out, I just emphasize here, that Humi's basically saying it's more important that we keep the flame alive in secret than that we publicize it to the world. Mm. So was he concerned that this dude was going to publicize the secrets? He was open to him publicizing it. So he's oh. okay with sharing it. It's just not his focus. Mm -hmm. And if the sharing leads to people trying to like seek them out and stamp them out, mm -hmm. then that's not a consequence he's willing to hazard. Mm. Can't risk smothering the flame, then. Right. Mm. Most important to preserve it. Blavatsky had developed her own power and knowledge, and stopped just shy of the point uh, where she could have been admitted into the Brotherhood. But she had developed her occult telegraphic ability so that the Brothers could use her to communicate with the TS and the wide world. TS meaning the Theosophical Society. Many of the British Raj weren't especially impressed by Blavatsky's occult phenomena, though. So she's basically going around as like their spokesperson, doing occult things mm -hmm. and writing occult books and trying to get people on board. And they're, you know, maintaining the flame secretly in the mountains. Uh, so, but, but many in the Raj were like, yeah, Blavatsky, you're doing some kooky stuff. <laughs> they mocked her. They called the people who believed in her dupes. Uh, and they believed that her feats were all performed through some trickery. Sinnott took the unpopular position of defending the various phenomena Blavatsky achieved in his presence during her six-week stay at their home in Allahabad. Her phenomena were especially persuasive because, in Sinnott's words, The Khandra is assisted by any number of confederates behind the scenes. Madame Blavatsky is a stranger to Simla and is a guest in my own house, under my own observation during the whole of her visit. Generally and frequently, Blavatsky produced raps, which sounded in all sorts of ways in all sorts of places. This was a regular feature of spiritualist mediums' stock and trade. But Blavatsky, you remember from all yeah. of our episodes about the spiritualists that like to make rapping sounds? So many raps. But Blavatsky attributed her raps to elemental spirits, which she controlled. This goes back all the way to our first season. Mm. She's the master of these elemental spirits, mm -hmm. and they cause the rapping sounds. It's not some ghost or spirit who's doing the rapping whenever they feel like it. So the spiritualist medium, the ghost, the spirit, just visits and does all the rapping the spirit wants to. With Blavatsky, she's like, spirit, rap for me. She said, so she's, do it. She calls Controlling upon them. one and asks them to do it. She's the boss. waiting for one. Mm-hmm. Mm. She also produced the sound of a silvery bell in the air, with no instrument visible to make the sound. It came out of nowhere, ringing through the air, and signifying pretty much nothing at all, except that there was the presence of an otherworldly force around her. Um, to go back to what Bree said, she said that she asked the spirits to do it. Does that, is that what she was doing? She was asking them to perform no. this, or was she 100% sort of controlling it. them? Yeah. Yeah. She kind of was She's like, the boss. come here now, do this. Like, She's okay. using them yeah. to achieve these occult feats, the bell and the taps. Okay. Blavatsky produced an array of other more eccentric phenomena, many surrounding the production of notes from Humi, the... Notes meaning like you know, scribbled on oh, things. Okay. Yeah, um, not 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 like music notes. Yeah, not music. Where else? But it's there like is the singing. bell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like he sings yeah. and then comes out of a trumpet somewhere. Yeah. Um, so she produced these notes under mysterious circumstances. And for our discussion today, I'm picking out three, Shannon, for your benefit, three of the strangest and most difficult to explain phenomena that she produced during her six weeks in Allahabad through the power of the masters, do you see? So she was controlling elemental spirits, but she was also like a vessel that the occult masters used to achieve their paranormal feats. 
Oh, okay. So they endowed her with the power to make these things happen. Or they made these things happen and then told her about it. Oh, okay. Got me? Okay. Mm -hmm. First, we have the cup and saucer incident. I know. That sounds a little weird. All right. Yeah, sounds exciting, doesn't it? I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Sinnott and his friends planned an expedition for six to have a nice aristocratic British picnic Mm -hmm. up a hill in Allahabad. Everyone's sort of like straightening up and feeling very British British. on a picnic. Very upper crap. Very, yeah, posh. We don't have enough picnics on this podcast. Uh, By the way, we don't associate our British listeners in the present day with British colonizers, which we don't want to offend our British listeners. We understand you're not the same as aristocratic colonizers of India. We would never accuse you of that. Okay. Now we've got that out of the way. So they're going on a posh British picnic. In Allahabad. But at the last minute, an extra guest joins, creating a real hosting crisis for the Senates. Yeah, like they packed enough for those people. <laughs> Why don't you just get an extra cup out? Missing a cup and sauce. Food. They've already left. But how far They've is already the picnic from their house, really? Let's be honest. But wait, there's going to be something paranormal. Oh my gosh, okay. What do we do? It's so stressful being privileged and British in 1880 and having to have picnics all the time. (laughs) You see, they only had six cups and saucers for tea, but they had seven guests. Seven! (laughs) They were short a cup and saucer, Brianna. I'm sorry. And so they figured they would ask the all-powerful White Lodge exploring the deepest and most complex spiritual secrets of the universe if they wouldn't mind producing a cup and saucer for them to have a proper tea. Just go get a cup. (laughs) Just literally, physically go. If I was in that situation, though, I too would ask the White Lodge if they could... I'd be like, Help hey, can you go and, go and grab me <laughs> No, because you, you got to... No, you have to attend to the guests, okay? <laughs> they don't have to attend to my guests. I am. They can go get a cup for me. That's not spiritual. So, so Blavatsky... You could share a cup. <laughs> <laughs> Sexy. So Blavatsky <laughs> was very patient with him, and she contacted the Brotherhood, <laughs> who shockingly were like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do the cup and saucer thing for you. See, now I'm on board with them. Blavatsky walked to a spot on the ground where she asked a gentleman of the party to start digging. He got under the ground cover and beneath some roots, and there he discovered a cup exactly matching the set the Synods had brought along to their picnic. Quel surprise! It's French for what a surprise. Okay, Okay. I didn't know what that meant. You threw me off for a second. (laughs) I was being a little facetious. All right, yeah. Okay. All right. Second, the slightly less insulting incident of the brooch. The brooch. But wait, the brooch. I'm still not over the cup that's thing. It. That's all I have to say Why about the cup and saucer. Because the brothers materialized it underground. Now. now the brooch. <laughs> Did the dirt look fresh before they dug it up? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wait, are you suggesting that they pre-planted the cup there for yeah. this incident? The brothers did. They came from the Himalayas. Yep, all the way. Uh, it's possible that someone had Shannon, and actually when Sinnott talks about this, he talks about the ground cover being, you know, not disturbed and all this sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now the brooch incident. Can I do the brooch incident now? Yeah. Yes. Okay, fine. Dinner parties are almost as stressful as picnics. The mood has grown quite dull, 
and I've run out of ideas to entertain Madame Blavatsky. Perhaps you could produce another one of your cultisms. In a mood so to prove the occult power of the Brotherhood, Blavatsky offered to produce any object for Mrs. Alan Hume, a friend of the Senate's, and would-be convert to the Theosophical Society. Mrs. Hume asked for a brooch that her mother had given her that was lost years ago. After quietly consulting with the Brotherhood, Blavatsky instructed the party to go outdoors and pointed to a star-shaped bed of flowers, where she claimed the brooch had fallen after it had been materialized by the brothers. Lo and behold, there it was. That makes more sense than digging it out of the ground. Finally, there is the cushion incident. Ooh. This is weirder. Sounds... This is even weirder than the cup one. Kud Humi had placed a note on Sinnet's breakfast table, telling him to expect a token, proving his astral presence near Sinnet. Later that day, at another picnic on another hill, Blavatsky asked Sinnet where he would like the object he had planned to send to him to be placed. Sinnet delegated the choice to his wife. Really? Why should I choose? I'm always having to choose where psychometrically telegraphed objects are going to form, as if I don't have my hands full planning picnics and dinner parties. Sinnet's wife asked that the sign appear inside her travel cushion that she used to keep her butt from getting sore when other people carried her places around the city. <laughs> people oh, like physically carry her. Around. Yeah, oh, the Indians would carry you from place what to place. What a struggle yeah. to have a sore butt. Both in the <laughs> inner and an outer cushion had to be ripped open to get to the feathers inside, and there they discovered Mrs. Sinnet's brooch and a note from Coot Humi. The note gave an address where Sinnet might send future correspondence to the enlightened adept, unless indeed, said Coot Humi, and you're going to like him for this, you would really prefer co corresponding through pillows. <laughs> <laughs> What a savage. What a savage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the joke master. He's, he's just, a, just some pillow talk. I just Ooh. like... Ah. Ooh, that was nice. That, oh, was, nice. that was better than that was. Well... All right, let's, let's switch back to a bit of biography here. Uh, Blavatsky Please. was frequently sick in India. In fall of 1880, she contracted both dengue fever and Punjab fever. Dengue involves a high fever, rash, nausea, headache, and muscle and joint pain. Unpleasant. <laughs> the next year, she traveled to Lahore, where she was supposed to have met Master Moria. Sorry, I couldn't <laughs> let that one go. <laughs> Lahore, yes. Lahore. Uh, then in 1882, she stayed in the Maharaja's Palace in Calcutta, where they established the Bengal Theosophical Society. Later that year, she was sick yet again, this time with Bright's disease, a kidney disease associated with diabetes. And she would have this on and off, and pretty much I think this is more, pretty much what killed her, kidney disease. In December, she and Olcott traveled to the Theosophical Society's new headquarters in Adyar in Madras, on the eastern coast of the subcontinent. In December 1883, Blavatsky was ill yet again and appeared at an annual meeting of the Society on crutches. Her doctors gave her three months to live if she didn't relocate to a different climate. So she and Olcott left for London in February 1884. I thought people tried to leave London when they're sick. <laughs> well, if you have, like, tuberculosis. <laughs> okay. She has kidney disease, so... so. Different things. But what if she got what tuberculosis she got when she moved she to she did London not have tuberculosis. on top of the kidney disease? What if? And that brings us to the Kalum affair. Yeah, can I do this now? Yeah, you oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. Emma Cutting had first met HPB in Cairo when she was attempting, HPB that is, to create a seance center for mediums. The business didn't go well, and Cutting lent her some money to get her out of the jam of not having a good business, I guess. Later, she probably racked up some debts and 
she needed to get out of the debts because she was trying to build this medium business. Later, Cutting married the Frenchman Alexis Coulomb, and together they made several attempts at running hotels in different cities, finally landing in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, sounds familiar, in 1880, near destitute. When Emma read that Blavatsky had arrived in India, she wrote to her, and Blavatsky, honoring her debt of friendship to Emma, gave Madame Coulomb and her husband positions as the housekeepers of the Theosophical Society headquarters in Adyar. Hmm. That's pretty nice of her. Yeah. By all accounts, the Kalums were more resentful than grateful, though, for this opportunity to work for Blavatsky. Right? Because they're like, we don't want to work for you, like, doing stuff. Honoring a debt yeah. gave them a job to work for her. Yeah. All right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they had a steady gig, so there's something to that. So they tried to gain money off members of the society in an attempt to change their station in life. They begged 2,000 rupees from Prince Rajnich Sinji, a recent initiate into the Theosophical Society, not my official pronunciation. Ranjnit, anyway. But she was rebuffed, and HPB reprimanded her for making the ask in the first place. Then, when Blavatsky and Olcott left for England, the Kulums saw their opportunity to cash in. A group of Christian missionaries miffed that Blavatsky's open contempt for them and support of the natives' religion uh, was sort of throwing off their whole missionary thing, Right? Killing the vibe. Killing their, yeah, killing their vibe, causing an intense miffing. They offered <laughs> 2,000 rupees to defraud Blavatsky. Just about the amount they were looking to collect, right? Perfect. When Blavatsky and Olcott were away, the theosophists she left in charge at Adyar decided to dismiss the Kalums for skimming out of the household accounts and attempting to blackmail the society with threats to satisfy the missionaries. And the Kalums, out on their butts yet again, and more bitter than ever, decided to bring Blavatsky down with them. How old is Blavatsky during all this? Not that it matters, but I was just wondering. She's in her middle age. Okay. Yeah, nearing late middle age. Here, the story diverges, depending on whether you're talking to a sympathetic or unsympathetic biographer. So we'll hear from both. Sylvia Cranston sympathetic biographer, mm. says that the Kalums gained access to Blavatsky's apartments in order to cut holes in the walls and stage the room to make it look like Blavatsky had been cheating to create her supposedly supernatural phenomena. The argument the Kalums made was that they passed letters through the hole into Blavatsky's shrine, a cabinet where the masters materialized letters and other objects like saucers. Do you say? Did they check? I was confused at first by the wall cutting, like what that would accomplish. Yeah. So the, as soon as she left, they started faking all this stuff mm -hmm. as if she had been faking it, but she okay. wasn't faking it, is okay. what Cranston says. Do you say? Okay, that makes sense. I was yeah. confused. Okay. So she's gone, so they want to make her look bad, so okay. they start okay. creating all these fake things. I just thought that they were just cutting holes in her walls. And yeah. Like, yeah. That'll get her. <laughs> <laughs> the cabinet itself was, I mean, that would, if you came yeah, to mind, I would, would, that would really ruin it. You'd be miffed. Uh, so the cabinet was hacked up so that it now had a false back to manipulate, to place objects into and out of uh, without being detected. Peter Washington, who is an unsympathetic biographer, says that Emma had been employed by Blavatsky in Cairo to perform fraudulent phenomena when they first met, and had simply taken up doing more of the same when she moved to Adyar. Dissatisfied with her situation and looking for a payday, she simply told the truth when the missionaries made their offer. So depending on who you want to believe, right? Either they're faking the faking, or they're just coming clean. 
The Kalooms, by their own account, seem to have cut holes all over the Adyar headquarters. Emma Kaloom published a pamphlet defending her version of events when the story hit all the newspapers. She painted Blavatsky as a career swindler with a bizarre sense of humor. Madame Blavatsky, one evening, taking hold of my arm, all of a sudden said, Look here, run and tell the colonel that you've seen a figure in the garden. Where's the figure? I asked. Never mind, she said. Run and tell him so. We shall have some fun. And thinking this to be a joke, I ran to him and told him. As the colonel came up, Madame began to laugh, saying, See, she's been afraid of an apparition. And so they both went on laughing, and going up to the other bungalow related the story to the rest of the people who were there. I must conscientiously say I did not know what they meant by this joke. But the joke was also at Alcott's expense. After we removed from the room we occupied in the library compound to a room above Colonel Alcott's bedroom, Madame Blavatsky came upstairs and asked me to try and make a hole. From this hole, by stretching the arm full length into it, one could touch the ceiling cloth of Colonel Alcott's office, which was adjoining to his bedroom. She gave me an envelope containing a portrait. I made a slit in the ceiling cloth with a penknife, and afterwards, slipped it through. This was a portrait of a Mahatma that Alcott would go on to report as one of the many genuine materialized phenomena he experienced through the secret brotherhood. And that brings us to the Hodgson Report, last part of today's discussion. Okay. A scandal ensued, and it was around this time that an investigator from the Society for Psychical Research by the name of Richard Hodgson arrived to perform a series of interviews with members of the Theosophical Society to try and get to the bottom of Lovatsky's claim to occult power. Hodgson had been open and even enthusiastic about the prospect of discovering Blavatsky to be a genuine occult disciple of the Brotherhood. He really wanted these phenomena to be real. But apparently, he was sorely disappointed, because in Volume 3 of the Proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research, issued in 1885, the SPR, reacting to his report and their own follow-up investigation, issued a series of damning conclusions. The Mahatma's letters, they said, were forgeries written by Blavatsky herself and materialized according to the cabinet and hole-in-the-wall scheme laid out by the unsympathetic Blavatsky scholar, Washington. The Society was careful to stipulate that Colonel Henry Alcott, who they initially thought might be Blavatsky's confederate in her confidence game, was actually just another one of her credulous dupes. But he wasn't alone. Hodgson was ruthless in his characterization of the witnesses to Blavatsky's miracles gathered in Adyar. In short, my lengthy examinations of the numerous array of witnesses to the phenomena showed that they were, as a body, excessively credulous, excessively deficient in the powers of common observation, and too many of them prone to supplement that deficiency by culpable exaggeration. Disputing the Theosophists' claim that the Kalooms had manufactured the wall aperture and rigged the shrine in order to incriminate Blavatsky, Hodgson dismissed the whole idea. There is no evidence to show that any person ever removed the shrine from the wall or saw it removed from the wall after it was first placed there, until the expulsion of the Kalooms. In fact, Hodgson discovered that when the Theosophists had found out that the shrine had been corrupted, they tore it apart and had it burned. It's a good way to destroy the evidence. Mm -hmm. Only Dr. Franz Hartmann, a German medical doctor and leading theosophist who would go on to write a series of interesting books on occultism and theosophy, retained a piece of the shrine. Hartmann wrote to Hodgson, I came to the conclusion, and I'm still of the opinion, that the holes in the wall were made by Monsieur Kolum after H.P. Blavatsky went to Europe, and I'm now inclined to believe that Monsieur Kolum made them to ingratiate himself with Madame Blavatsky to facilitate her supposed tricks. In fact, I do not know of a single phenomena that happened in my presence that would have been of the slightest use. 
Hartman makes a valid point here. We considered three separate incidents of the cup and saucer, the brooch, and the cushion, none of which could have benefited at all from the use of a rigged cabinet. Right? So if they yeah. had a rigged cabinet, yeah. still Why wouldn't they bring a cabinet to all those picnics? <laughs> and what sense would it make to use it at the picnic? Yeah, it's a lot to haul around. more cups. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Wait. Wait. That would have solved the whole problem. If they I just told you they could have just brought extra cups. <laughs> wow. <laughs> For Hodgson, the presence of the cabinet was proof that Blavatsky was willing and able to fake her materialized communications from the Mahatmas, and that she employed co-conspirators in her work, namely the Kalums, although Hodgson would name several others in his report. So let's go through the Blavatsky phenomena that we discussed and Hodgson's explanations one by one, matching them up. First, the Raps Senate heard constantly attending Blavatsky were, according to Hodgson, just crackings of her thumb joint. What? Well, the Fox sisters yeah. we talked about in their the episode, toe. their toe, right? Yeah. Oh, or yeah. Or at least that was what they claimed, but then they mm -hmm. recanted it anyway. But I feel like you would have been able to hear where that was coming from. Or someone would have noticed her thumb moving. I was about to say, yeah. you could yeah. see that. As for the ringing, Kalum told Hodgson that there was the bell sounds were made by a machine, like a small music box that Blavatsky wore or gave to her servant Babula to wear. Stains on Blavatsky's garments showed exactly where she wore it, where the thing had uh, rusted or oxidized. Babula was also the explanation for the mysteriously buried cup and saucer. He was only 15 when Blavatsky had first hired him in Bombay, and a teenager for all of the events that transpired throughout Blavatsky's and Olcott's Indian adventures. He was a Gujarati boy from the western coast and the, of the subcontinent south of Pakistan. The Gujarati people were historically known for being merchants, and with a history of travel, were eager to migrate to other parts of the British Empire. For his part, Bebula could speak several languages and learn French from Blavatsky. According to Hodgson, he also learned how to deceive his aristocratic colonizers. Working among the servants, Bebula was able to manipulate which tea set Mrs. Sinnott brought along for her picnic and swipe a cup to perform the brothers' miraculous materialization. So they're just pretty much... So I didn't really understand so why So he's like that... smuggling the cup along with him and just sneaks it into the dirt when nobody's looking. But, but why does all that background about him matter? They just... Well, he was 15 at the time, so that's something we should bear in mind. So they're like, well, oh, he's, he's, he's a foreigner, guy. but he's also very intelligent. Okay. Uh, he's not a foreigner. He's, he's sort of from, from a bit, he's not from the immediate region, but he's a very intelligent guy who speaks multiple languages. But I also have trouble with the fact that even if he did bring that extra cup, how did he know it would be used? Also, like, was it planned that well, the guess... dude had showed up like randomly, the extra person? Like, because they didn't know there was going to be a seventh person. Right, he would have had to anticipate exactly. several things. Exactly. So yeah. that's why I don't, I don't know. The whole dirt thing, like, if it didn't look like it was unturned, then, I mean, it's also weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we could say that, you know, Sin is just trying to justify. Mm -hmm. this, yeah. you know, work around this very obvious explanation. The previous abstraction of the cup and saucer, their burial in the early morning, the description of the spot to Madame Blavatsky, the choice of the particular service taken, are deeds which lie easily within the accomplishments of Babula's powers. On the materialized brooches, Hodgson offers a less satisfactory analysis, because these events are, at least as written down by Sinnott, much harder to explain even imagining the help of Babula and the Kalooms. To begin, he only mentions one brooch, and contrary to Sinnott's story that Mrs. Hume hadn't seen her brooch since before she left for India, figures that she must have had it with her and sent it out for repair. So he completely changes what the brooch is. It is at any rate certain that Mrs. Hume entrusted a brooch which needed some slight repair to Mr. Hormuzji as Servai of Bombay. 
who shortly afterwards return it to Madame Blavatsky. The fact that Mrs. Hume chose the lost brooch as the object to be brought to her by the brother, Mr. Hume, is inclined to explain as a case of thought transference to Mrs. Hume from Madame Blavatsky, who is probably willing intensely that Mrs. Hume should think of the brooch. Members of the SPR had seen evidence of thought transference and were far more inclined to believe in it than many of us today. But that's more a credit to them than us. If Blavatsky truly was scamming these people as described, her ability to materialize randomly selected items, knowing which item to have, even though it was selected live in front of her, right? There's mm -hmm. some serious improv going on here. That's difficult to explain. She didn't know that they would ask for this brooch or that brooch or this note to materialize in that place. Mrs. Hume chooses the brooch, even if Blavatsky, and even if Blavatsky manipulates her choice, how would she have managed to get a brooch that Hume had lost in London years ago in the first place? Exactly. Yeah. None of it adds up. That's a vast conspiracy, yeah. <laughs> right? Mrs. Sinnott chose the cushion for her brooch and the note to be buried in. If Blavatsky had staged the cushion in advance, there was no way for her to know that the cushion would have been the spot that she selected. And plus, yeah. the woman, like, she said she sits on it, right? Right. <laughs> so she, like, she, like, I don't know if she was sitting on it at the time. But, I like but, to think she was. <laughs> she was being carried, sir. She was being carried at that moment. Hard the, work being carried. The only possible natural explanation would involve sleight of hand. But after placing the cushion under a rug for a minute... Alfred Sinnott was the one to cut it open, and his wife searched the feathers. So there was no chance for her to like sneak it in, mm -hmm. sleight of hand yeah. wise. It would have been different if she was the one actually opening moving it. Stuff. Like yeah. if she was the one physically moving stuff, mm -hmm. then the, it would make more sense. The point I want to make here is that mysteries remain in all of this, even if Blavatsky was up to some hanky panky, which seems entirely possible, maybe with Babula. Uh, Hodgson was unable to... She's not, not that kind of hanky-panky. Okay, I was about to say, she is middle-aged and he is 15. I was about to Hodgson was unable to... And she was virginal and celibate throughout her life. and yeah. Quite proud of that. Yeah. Hodgson was unable to produce a satisfactory explanation for all of her phenomena. The fact that she may have been faking some does not mean that she was faking all, in my opinion. In modern history, two real fakers spring to mind who similarly blended real and fake phenomena. Eusapia Palladino was a medium extensively tested by the SPR. Uh, Palladino could produce cold breezes and wraps, cause objects to levitate, and materialize hands and spirit bodies. An investigation in Cambridge in 1895 conducted by Frederick Myers, uh, as well as Henry and Eleanor Sidgwick and Richard Hodgson himself, proved a failure. Oh, sorry, I know we kind of moved on, but what's SPR? Society for Psychical Research. Yeah, okay. Thank so you. we're talking about an, uh, an exploration of this other medium, which I'm comparing to Blavatsky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that was a failure, test number one. The phenomena were not impressive, and Palladino was caught cheating. But a subsequent investigation in Naples in 1908, conducted by Everard Fielding, W.W. Bagali, and Hereward Carrington, exerted very disciplined controls on the medium, and she produced an impressive array of unexplained phenomena. So she's caught faking, but she also does mysterious things. See, everyone could just have an off day occasionally. Yuri Geller's a very famous modern example. Have you guys heard of this guy, the spoon bender? Oh, yeah. Geller's ability to bend metal was tested and affirmed by university and military physicists, but the stage magician James Randi caught him faking psychic phenomena by prearranging his props, for example, on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. The ability to produce genuine phenomena does not preclude the impulse to cheat in order to continue to impress and hold the interest of your audience, is what I'm trying to say. 
especially if it means gaining or maintaining celebrity status, which Blavatsky more or less had in India. Remember, she's traveling around these aristocratic circles. People are writing books about her. Mm -hmm. So she's tempted, I think, to fake some things to impress these people, the same way Yuri Geller was on The Tonight Show. It's at this point in his report that Hodgson turns to the letters. Were Kudhumi's letters forged by Madame Blavatsky? Was there even such a person as Kudhumi or Master Moria, for that matter? Oh my god. I know, I know. That's Doubts weird. begin uh, independent of anything the Kalums did or Hodgson wrote with the Kittle incident. What? The, the, the Kittle? What is a Kittle? The trance medium H. Kittle. Oh, it's a person. Oh. Accused Kudhumi <laughs> of plagiarizing a letter he had written to Alfred Sinnott in which Sinnott had later published uh, which, which Sinnott had later published from a speech given by the transmedium, Kittle, which had been published in the Banner of Light two months earlier. So Kittle publishes his speech, and then suddenly it shows up in things Sinnott is writing on the inspiration of Kuthumi. So Sinnott's publishing what Kuthumi is sending, and it looks an awful lot like the stuff Kittle had published months earlier. Okay. Do you see? Yeah. yeah. Blavatsky, attempting to navigate around this difficulty, blamed an, blamed an unnamed disciple who had copied the message down from Humi. And Humi issued a revised version which put Kittle's material in quotes. Ah, like when I catch a student plagiarizing. <laughs> when Kittle found still more plagiarisms, Humi claimed that he must have unintentionally picked up Kittle's lecture on the occult currents, like the radio uh, waves, and incorporated it into his notes to Sinnott. Suspicious stuff, right? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Hodgson had a number of experts at the time analyze the writing, including SPR member Eleanor Sidgwick. The comparison of handwritings further tends to show that Kutumi Lal Singh and Mahatma Moria are fictitious personages, and most of the documents purporting to have emanated from these personages are in disguised handwriting of Madame Blavatsky herself. SPR has since published a refutation of Hodgson's conclusion, fun fact, albeit a century later. SPR investigator Vernon Harrison performed a detailed analysis of the Mahatma letters and samples of Blavatsky's writing and concluded that the handwriting was, in fact, different. So many, many decades later, this guy Vernon Harrison returns to this report and he's like, oh, wait a second, I think these handwritings are different. Mm -hmm. Handwriting analysis at that time was not sophisticated enough to determine that they were written by the same person. Harrison also entertained the idea that others might have forged the letters to implicate Blavatsky or manipulate the society. Alexis Kulum, for example, had demonstrated an ability to fake Blavatsky's writing and used it to send false messages from Blavatsky to other members of the Theosophical Society. So Kulum could have been faking letters to make Blavatsky look bad, is what Harrison's saying. Furthermore, he notes that Humi's writing was done in a kind of ink that, unlike most ink of the time period, had not faded with time and did not, at the time, penetrate through the paper, but rather rested on the surface, failing to enter the rice paper's pores. Weird. So she just had, like, a magic pen? <laughs> Is that what it's saying? Well, not Blavatsky, who could Humi, because okay. he materialized these letters. So, oh, okay, so wait, could so... You wipe the we're talking, off? About, we're talking about the Humi letters here. So we're not talking about actual writing, we're talking about materialized writing. Well, it is writing, but, but it's like, Humi writing. But it's not writing. like yeah, somebody yeah, took yeah. a pen. Okay, no, that's no. why I was like, how did somebody write on a paper without it going through? Well, if Alexis Kalum had done it or Blavatsky had done it, it would have gone through. Sunk but Humi is so, magic. Okay. That brings us to the biggest <laughs> question of all. If Blavatsky was faking the Mahatmas, why did she do it? And if she wasn't, who were they really? We'll find out in the next installment of Blavatsky's series here.
on Occult Confessions. Oh, oh, well, we're done. Oh. Wow. Yeah, how about that? Yay. Well, I told you, it's a two-parter, so we're, oh, that's it yeah. for this. We've we talked about everything yet. the occult world. Now we're going to talk about the politics of the next episode. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Okay, that brings us to our order of confessors. Shannon, you got to initiate this for us. All right, Shannon, uh, Instaquizzler, what can we look forward to on Instagram? Oh, well, I posted some pictures of fan art that one of our listeners made. I'm really excited about it. You guys should go check it out. Cool, fan art. That's our first fan art. It's our first, and if anyone else wants to make fan art, I will gladly post it on Instagram. Very excited to have some. Delightful. So if you want to draw your own version of uh, Kudhumi? (laughs) That? I'd like to know what people think Kudhumi looks like. I want to... I don't know what he looks. I don't know. I don't have. There are some up, images but... out there, but really? I, I think you should go ahead and, and imagine him for yourself before you <laughs> yeah. engage in the fan. Yeah. The occult waves speak to you a little bit. Yeah. All right, I do have a few confessors that I have been uh, exchanging messages with. Kevin M, uh, an art historian, bumped up his Patreon donation to us recently. <laughs> Uh, because uh, he was really enjoying the Satanism series. Yeah, and Satan will do oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> Libby and I keep saying. Satan. Speaking of the Satanism series, uh, I had an excellent exchange with Sarah from Montreal, who uh, fell over laughing uh, at our Chuck Norris references in our (laughs) Satanic Panic episode. She remembers the moment when Chuck Norris turned to his friend and said, Tears from heaven, Trevet. Tears from heaven. It sounds it's like it was a yeah, You guys have no scene. idea what I'm talking about. It sounds so deep, yeah. though. But I don't know. interesting knowing how much of a fan you are of Chuck Norris. Yeah. I'm a fan of Walker, Texas Ranger. Ah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Jed Zeppelin, who has an awesome name. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also heard from him. He's working on a book and uh, wrote to stroke our egos. So consider your egos stroking. Thank you. Ooh. <laughs> That's what I Thank like you. to do to my egos. That wraps up our ego to be. I'm gonna stop talking. All right. <laughs> Let's wrap up our uh, order please, of confessors here. Do. We'll gong on out of this one. <clears throat> uh, all right, and let's close it out. Do you know the words? Um, I hereby declare adjourn. And, oh shoot! I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the order of. Secret, Secret order, order of alchemical, alchemical actors, actors until such a time comes as we get together. As we get together and do it again. Yeah. Very nice. A Thank group you. effort. A group effort. Uh, so Some of us. Someone pay attention. always has to help me when I have to say it. I didn't help. I just watched. Today we had uh, Ray Candela doing the voice of Helena Blavatsky. Hunter Sheeler doing the voice of Hartman. We had Sean Priest doing the role of Hodgson. Hodgson. <laughs> uh, what other characters do we have in the movie? Uh, yeah. Oh, we had Abby Cook yeah. doing Emma Kaloum. Mrs. Sinnott. Ah, uh, yes, our own Jacob Wheatley. I don't know if you recognized him there. I know. And Brandon Walls doing your husband, A.P. Sinnott. I know. Oh. How about that? <laughs> Love it. So, uh, joining me in discussion today, we had Brianna Litterall. Hey, I mean, bye, I guess. Our metallurgic hey. prophet. Yeah. Who's going to have to find new metallurgic things to do this year. Yeah. Shannon Lander, it's all right. It's first episode for all you. Right. So you'll we'll start to discover metallurgic so. ways to express your metallurgy. Okay. Shannon Landers, Bye, Instaquisitor, and Jacob Wheatley, Knight of the Dangling Serpent. Goodbye. Soon to be master. Soon We're working on it. My name master. is Rob C. Thompson. I am your host and the Supreme Hierophant here at the Alchemical Actors Ranch. We will be broadcasting... 
digital digicat podcasting. You should know, was it ranch? News to you. I only thought of Neverland Ranch. Oh, no, no, not that ranch. <laughs> oh, I thought of, I was thinking like uh, uh, Manson. Oh. None of those ranches. No, this is a much nicer ranch to hang out in. This, okay. Let's stop talking about ranches. What? I'll catch you all next time for Blavatsky's second part in India here on Occult Confessions.